Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And on this Monday evening, I'm joined by James Meadway. James, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you, Michael? Very well. I should say my mum's a fan. She says, James Meadway always got so much to say. And she meant that in a good way. Oh, right. Okay. Well, thank you to your mum then. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Let me tell you what we've got coming up tonight. A pretty awkward moment for the Tory immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, a pro-car activist who has attacked Ulez cameras, um, has been shown on talk TV. This happens while anti-SUV activists deflate Land Rover tyres. If we back one form of direct action, do we have to back the other? We'll also be looking at the situation in the West African nation of Niger after a military coup took place. So stay tuned for all of that. This show has a lot of range, I can tell you. The first group of asylum seekers to be housed on Suella Bravman's Bibi Stockholm barge in Dorset have today been taken on board. The government had reportedly expected 50 asylum seekers to arrive on the ship today. Those moved to the barge were sent a one-page notice letter that didn't tell them the reason for being moved, nor the date it would happen. They also weren't told that the Bibi Stockholm was a barge. Protesters haven't made it easy for the government to carry out its plans. Refugee charity Care for Calais have reportedly stopped 20 migrants from boarding the ship. And local activists from nearby Portland turned out to make their objections clear. One told Sky News why she was there. We hope that attempts to divide or scapegoat or, or follow people, um, you know, don't happen and that we show the real humanity that there is locally. The situation is, of course, that you've got tens of thousands of asylum seekers coming across uh, to England here. Um, They obviously have to be housed uh, somewhere humane. Actually, if you look at the airfields and the barges, it's a tiny fraction of the 50,000 or plus uh, who are currently in hotels at £6 million a day. What's what's your group's solution as to where these people... It's really simple. Deal with the backlog of the claims. There were more people who claimed asylum in 2002 than there was in 2022, but they didn't have to have them in hotels because they were dealing with their claims. They're not dealing with them and therefore people have to be housed and it's leaving the refugees in this situation causing this kind of, you know, they're they're not, there's nothing ready in this barge for people. None of the support for the guys is in place. It's a complete mess and they just need to get on and sort out the backlog of the claim. Very sensible contribution there. Um, Up to 500 men aged between 18 and 65 will be housed on the barge while their asylum applications are processed. That's more than twice the 222-person standard capacity of the ship. The government has increased the space on board by using bunk beds and changing formerly communal areas into six-bed dormitories. That's a move that led the Fire Brigades Union to issue a warning over safety due to overcrowding. Of course, the cruelty of the barge plan is a feature, not a bug. This was Home Office Minister Sarah Dines explaining the Tories' strategy. It's part of a a wide range of places where we're going to accommodate people. But what it sends is a forceful message that there will be proper accommodation, but not luxurious. Um, Luxurious hotel accommodation has been part of the pull, I'm afraid. There have been promises made abroad by the organised criminal gangs and organisations which are trying to get people into the country unlawfully. And they say you'll be staying in a very nice hotel in the middle of a town in England. That needs to stop. And the barge is just one of a, a wide range of other measures. But how do you know that that, that is part of the pull? We were told that the, the government scheme to deport people to Rwanda, you know, would, would stop people. That, that was, was part of the pull. And the, and the people thinking that they won't be, be staying in the UK and would be hopping straight on a plane would deter people. But it doesn't seem to have deterred people, does it? The numbers are, are a little down for this time of year, crossing the small boats, but the weather has been mm. atrocious. So, you know, the chances are when the weather improves, they will shoot back up. Well, Rwanda hasn't started yet. We're waiting for the Supreme Court judgment. Uh, we're confident that Rwanda is going to happen. However, at the moment, we need to make sure that it's a basic but proper accommodation and not luxurious. If you come to the country uh, from a safe country unlawfully, you can't expect to stay in a four-star hotel. So this is just one of many measures we're bringing in. Answers just so, I mean, on the one hand, it's completely stupid. On the other hand, it's completely grotesque. I say grotesque because of how misleading it is. Now, anyone who has known someone going through the asylum system will know that it's not a holiday. It's not some great experience where you get to stay in a plush hotel. The hotels where these people are staying, so I knew someone who was in an asylum hotel near Birmingham, rats. You know, it, w- it was not a nice place. There was rats, there was people, you know, it's overcrowded. Obviously, what you have got is, you know, they talk about the exploitation of the people smugglers. Now, I've got no 
doubt at all um, that those people who you know help people cross the channel are exploitative people. They're doing it for profit. You know who else is doing this for profit? The people who run the hotels, who the home office contracts to put asylum seekers in. And the reason they are able to give such a terrible service is because their customer isn't the asylum seeker who's staying there. Their customer is the home office, and the home office explicitly wants them to do a bad job, right? So if an asylum seeker claims to the home office and says, oh, this hotel which which you're paying for with taxpayers' money, um, they have rats, the food is cold and not on time, and you know my room is damp and I have to share it with too many people, the home office aren't going to say, okay, we'll get onto that hotel um, because we're paying them good money, they should be providing a good service. No, the home office is going to say, brilliant! That's what you should expect for having the temerity to try and seek safety from persecution in this country, which we always tell ourselves is so welcoming. Uh, why it's stupid, as well as being dishonest, is that this is not a pull factor for asylum seekers, right? The people who are in France, in Calais, trying to get over to the UK, they are staying in tents, they're homeless, there's no running water. You know, these aren't people who say, I want an upgrade to a hotel. No, these are people who are living in incredibly desperate situations. So frankly, and I mean, this is, you know, this is what's unpleasant about it, that barge, however miserable it looks, is probably still going to be an upgrade for most of the people who are in Calais right now. Does that justify putting people in horrific conditions? No, but it does completely undermine the idea that people will stop coming here because of the prospect of staying in a barge. These people are staying in worse conditions already, right? And people aren't risking their lives crossing the channel because they want to be put up for a few nights in a hotel. It's just nonsense. There were some more nonsense government briefings on a related asylum plan to the papers this weekend. The Times has reported that the government is hoping to send asylum seekers to Ascension Island if their Rwanda scheme fails in the Supreme Court. Ascension Island is a tiny British territory about 1,500 miles off the west coast of Africa. The Times reports this. The volcanic island 4,000 miles from the UK in the middle of the South Atlantic was previously considered as a location to process asylum seekers. Ministers believed its remote location would create a strong deterrent factor for migrants planning to cross the channel in small boats. Using Britain's overseas territories forms part of a range of Plan B contingencies that have been discussed by ministers and officials in case the government's policy to deport migrants to Rwanda has to be abandoned. It's not just the ascension islands, though, on the list of potential deportation sites. The Times goes on to say this. The government is also in negotiations with at least five other countries over a similar deportation deal to the one agreed with Rwanda last year. The Times understands. This involves sending asylum seekers on a one-way flight to another country rather than taking them to an overseas territory temporarily. Under Boris Johnson's government, the Foreign Office had engaged in advanced talks with six countries, including Rwanda, about a potential migration relocation scheme Ghana, Nigeria, Namibia, Morocco and Niger, which is currently in the throes of a military coup, were also understood to have been involved. In a Radio 4 interview, Sarah Dines had this to say about that story. Ascension Island, uh, a British overseas territory, is that part of a plan B if the Rwanda policy doesn't materialise for whatever reason? We're thoroughly committed to seeing the Rwanda agreement through. We're, we're uh, confident that the offshoring is lawful. The High Court and the um, Lord Chief Justice agreed that offshoring, this sort of application, is thoroughly um, lawful in Rwanda, and that's what we're looking towards. But of course, as a responsible government, we're looking at additional wraparound measures as to, to see what else may also be available. But we are thoroughly committed to the Rwandan agreement. So these other measures, because we've known before that there are other countries that were possible alternatives to Rwanda, but the idea of Ascension Island, and clearly someone has briefed two newspapers this morning on this basis, that would be different, wouldn't it? That would be offshore processing of UK asylum applications. It wouldn't be fair or right to actually go into any uh, discussions as to any individual uh, alternatives um, to Rwanda because we're thoroughly committed to Rwanda. But the government, as you would expect, is, is talking to lots of people and making plans, as you would expect. It's proper government to do that. But someone has briefed two newspapers this morning. So this is now in the public domain, at least these reports are in the public domain, are there alternatives being considered which are about the offshore processing of UK applications? Is that a possible plan B? I wouldn't like to say alternative or plan B because our plan is Rwanda, which we're confident is going to work. But of course, we're looking at additional, um, uh, rate, uh, additional schemes across the globe. Of course we are. In a sign that the Home Office doesn't really know what it's doing, the government quickly rolled back on that message. The Sun's Harry Cole posted this. 
Bit of an awkward morning for the Home Office. Junior Minister on the radio saying they are looking at everything when quizzed on Ascension Island migrant yarn. But spin doctors trying to kill the story, saying it's nonsense and never going to happen and was abandoned in 2020. So mixed messages from the Home Office. What do Labour think, though, about the barge? Well, Shadow Immigration Minister Stephen Kinnock told Sky on Sunday that Labour wouldn't immediately shut it down. The fact is that the last 13 years have seen the Conservative government's incompetence and neglect destroying our asylum system. So we're in a situation now where they're having to scramble to use hotels, to use barges, to use military bases. We're going to inherit a mess if we're privileged to form the next government, and we're going to have to fix that mess. We will do so as quickly as possible to get people out of hotels and off the barges and out of the military camps. But the reality is on day one of a Labour government, we will have to deal with the infrastructure that we have and the complete chaotic, shambolic mess that the Conservative government uh, will have left us. So, Mr Kinnock, you would still use the barges then? We'll be left with no choice but to deal with the mess that we inherit. The implication there is that Labour would only need to use barges in the short term until they sorted out the mess left by the Tories. But what would that look like in practice? Well, this morning, Shadow Trade Secretary Nick's, Nick Thomas-Simons said this. They have 173,000 people now uh, who are in the backlog in our asylum system. That's the reason that they've ended up having to use hotels and bases and, and now this barge. They are there because of their chronic failure. What they actually need to do is instead of the gimmicks, instead of the headline chasing, they need to put a proper plan in place to get that asylum backlog down. In the first instance, rather than the £140 million they've spent so far on the Rwanda plan, and by the way, they've sent more Home Secretaries to Rwanda than they have people, they need to use that money for a new cross-border crime unit that could actually tackle the model, deal with the model of the criminal smuggling gang so that fewer people are going into that perilous crossing on the English Channel. Secondly, get the asylum backlog down and do that by making sure you have things like fast tracking, where you've got returns uh, agreements in place with, say, a safe country like Albania, speed those through the system. But thirdly, they need to get the returns agreements in place so that when people have no are found to have no right to be here, they can actually be returned. That's the kind of systematic approach the government needs to take, not just the gimmicks and the headline chasing that we've seen. So what do the experts make of asylum seekers being housed on the Bibi Stockholm? Earlier today, I spoke to G. Manoharan from the Association of Visitors to Immigration Detainees, who himself came to the UK as a person seeking asylum. Simply, it is inhuman and and barbaric for lots of people who would be put on that barge would have been escaping unimaginable terror and, and violence and famine and war and rather unwelcoming people within our community. We are warehousing them into into the barge and it's for us it's you know as, as, a, as a general public um in, in the uk we should know that we'll be collectively hitting a, a morality sink personally i've um i've claimed asylum 10 years ago and i was housed in 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 the community um in a in a in a house that that was contracted by the home office and you know the the government is going on about um this is the only solution and um, the only thing I can think of is as a performative politics and, and they are using cruelty as a, as a tool to point finger at people who are vulnerable. There was a solution not long ago where people were held in, in the community, within the, uh, you know, among the community. It's not considered or it's not uh, floated as a hate target uh, as what they're trying to do at the moment with, with these barges in, in, in in, in some of my remote where already the, the local communities are understressed uh, with, with less resources. And uh, it's just simply pitting one group against another. People should be housed and welcomed in the community. And that that's probably is, is a better solution and, and a human solution than what they have proposed um, and what they are trying to do that by sending at least five people today to these parties.
James, um, the barge seems to have replaced Rwanda as sort of the rallying cry of the conservatives trying to raise the salience of migration and asylum boats. Um, I mean, will it work for them politically? Will it have any impact at all when it comes to you know the actual speed at which we process migrants or the cost of, of housing people while they wait for our sclerotic home office to deal with their cases? No, I mean, look, on that one, is, is it going to have any sort of practical impact? No, not at all, for all the reasons that yourself and your interview have, have, interviewee have detailed. I mean, the, the explosion in cases in the backlog over the last few years, and it's gone up about five times in the last few years, is not so much from the fact we're getting a lot more people applying. That has risen. It comes from the fact that the Home Office basically is, is sort of falling apart. Sclerotic is exactly the word uh, that you'd use there. And, and this is part of the, the story about austerity and about the lack of trained staff and about the, the lack of, of, of decent procedures to get people uh, processed rapidly there. That We now have you know, one of the worst backlogs uh, of any European country. So that's not going to be solved by saying, oh, here's a, a stinking great barge to put uh, too many people, as it turns out. Uh, in. That doesn't make the slightest bit of difference there. Uh, I think your interviewee was completely correct. This is a performance. This, this is designed to look cruel and horrible, a theatre of cruelty, something that's a distraction from the very real failings out there that looks like you're doing something that taps into, I think it must be a, a chunk of people sort of, must be out there somewhere with some, you know, bad kind of instincts and ideas about this and thinking of what we would need to do to try and solve this problem, actually not solving the problem at all and making a nice sort of song and dance about the whole thing all the way through to the election. There's, there's not very much here that works in any real practical sense, let alone any sense where you might think we ought to be caring for people. We ought to have a moral concern about what we're doing. And I mean, what do you make of the Labour position? I mean, lots of you know, progressives will be looking at the Labour Party and sort of tearing their hair out because they're saying, why can't you just defend the human rights of of people seeking asylum, why are you constantly making the, the practical argument? At the same time, they'd, you know, I mean, they, they can plausibly claim that their strategy is actually in the interests of asylum seekers because what they're trying to do is get elected. And then, you know, I mean, the least you can say for them is I don't think they will have the same desire as the Tories to make this an issue. You know, we've often talked on this show about the fact that this backlog of asylum seekers. I mean, potentially it's because of austerity and because of government incompetence. It could also be because the Tories actively wanted to create this crisis because they think that it helps them in elections. I can't see Labour having the same incentive structure, whatever it is that they, they believe about this. That's basically right. I mean, look, it's, it's a sort of fairly minimal thing to go for, by the way, which is that we will make sure this system that should work in this way does in fact work in this way, that we will get the, the backlog down. And, and that is actually, no, that is actually better. If you talk to people who are asylum seekers, you can see that it's not great to just be sort of stuck in this weird, horrible limbo used, by the way, as a political football, is sort of, you know, pointed at and jeered at and subjected. Uh, to, in some cases, we're seeing protests by the far right outside hotels uh, that people are housing. The hotels themselves are disgusting. So, of course, it's better to process quickly. But this feels like a fairly minimum bar to get over if you're saying, oh, we're going to make the, the country better and different after the next election. And if you want to stretch that a bit, then it, you do have to get into the question of like, well, what kind of country are we? What are we doing to actually welcome people? What would a genuinely humane, caring system start to look like? Can we shift the balance of the political argument away from scratching around to find some scapegoat, some of the most desperate people out there and point at them and jeer and yell about it? Could we do slightly better than this? On that score, Labour isn't going anywhere near this stuff. They're going, we're going to get the baseline competence. Okay, fine. Glad to have a bit of baseline competence. That'd be nice. A home office that wasn't completely dysfunctional in a cruel and horrible way. Congratulations. You could do a little bit better than this. What could they do? What would you be advising them? I'm not, I'm not sure if the current, you know, he used to be a Labour advisor. It's a very different sort of administration and organisation then. Uh, if, if they were still seeking your advice, what would you be telling um, the, the shadow home secretary? I mean, one of the ones here is to get out of uh, treating this purely as a home office issue and start to talk a little bit more seriously about the manifest other failings in, in our economy and what the things that have been going wrong are and start to have a more serious argument about why people aren't being paid enough. I think you have to treat the issue of migration and refugees and that set of things here, which Tories want you to talk about in this particular way, get out of that and start to address a rather different kind of, uh, rather different kind of politics, to talk about class in a serious way, to talk about inequality in a serious way. And 
to suggest what you might start to do about it. That's the big picture part of that. On the specifics, there are things like, can we come up with uh, better arrangements with France? Can we start to think about what a home office that works might look like? And would that include even having the home office? There's a case here for saying this thing is so dysfunctional. It needs a really thoroughgoing reform. It needs breaking up. It needs changing in a really systematic way to try and improve all of this. Can we get out of the politics where we have to, and you know, you can see what the, the government is trying to set up for Labour in this one, where, where it's a, a grand conspiracy involving sort of Keir Starmer, the inevitable lefty immigration lawyers, the people smugglers. Can you start to seriously challenge that rather than just point out you'll run the system a bit better? These are big political questions, I think, that it would require quite a different political approach from Labour to get to by this point. I don't think we're going to get there with Keir Starmer's Labour, let's put it that way. Next story. The West African nation of Niger is in the grip of a military coup. In late July, soldiers from the government's presidential guard deposed elected president Mohamed Bazoum in the former French colony's capital, Niamey. Hundreds of the coup supporters arrived in the capital shortly thereafter. French flags were set alight and the French embassy came under sustained attack. Some supporters also carried Russian flags. Though it's unclear whether that indicated Russian support for the coup or a request from some people for Russia to help Niger maintain military rule. The Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, suspended Niger from its organisation after the installation of the new military leader, Abdurrahmane Chiani. It also imposed a seven-day deadline, threatening military action if the elected government was not restored. ECOWAS is usually composed of 15 states, including Niger, but since 2021, Mali, Burkina Faso and Guinea have all been suspended for having coups of their own. Mali and Burkina Faso, who share borders with Niger, have sided with the new rulers of Niger and opposed the ECOWAS deadline, saying any military intervention would be a declaration of war. Guinea has refused to cooperate with ECOWAS sanctions. In response to the threat of military action by ECOWAS, Niger has closed its airspace. Meanwhile, the US and UK embassies have evacuated their staff. The new military government has also broken ties with France, who have suggested they would back any action from ECOWAS. French President Emmanuel Macron has called the coup, quote, perfectly illegitimate and has warned that he will, quote, not tolerate any attack on France and its interests in the country. And as for those interests, well, Niger is economically poor. Nearly half of its 25 million citizens live on around $2 per day. It also ranks very low on a number of humanitarian indexes, but is also resource rich. It's the largest supplier of the radioactive element uranium to the EU and supplies around 5% of the world's stock of the substance. Mining operations have continued in the country despite the coup, but the military leaders have blocked exports to France. France gets around 20% of the uranium it needs to power its extensive nuclear power infrastructure from Niger. And a French multinational, Arano, which is 90% owned by the French state, owns majority stakes in Niger's largest mines. Niger's geographical position is also of strategic importance. Its neighbours have worked with the state to curb a resurgent Islamic state to the north of the Sahel region, as well as Boko Haram to the south. Another factor that may have contributed to the coup is the ethnicity of the democratic president, Bazoum, of minority Arab origin. Bazoum was the first Arab to head the nation, winning the election despite opposition candidates labelling him a foreigner. But new military leader Chiani has blamed a lack of security in Niger, as well as economic and social failings under the democratic government for the coup. Coup supporters have also decried the country's close link to Western Europe and the US. But writing from House Arrest, elected President Mohamed Bazoum said this about security in the Washington Post. In fact, Niger's security situation has improved dramatically, facilitated by the very partnerships the junta opposes. Foreign aid makes up 40% of our national budget, but it will not be delivered if the coup succeeds. To the south, where we face the terrorist group Boko Haram, there have been almost no attacks for two years, and refugees are returning to their villages. The country's north and west have likewise suffered no major attacks since I took office in 2021. Thanks to our allies' support and training from partners, including the Indiana National Guard, Niger is now the safest it has been in the past 15 years. And on the economy, Bazoum said this, My government has been similarly successful in terms of economic and social governance. After a slow recovery from COVID-19 in 2021, our per capita growth rate more than tripled to 7.4% 7 last year. 
2022 was Niger's first year without a single school day lost to strikes from teachers or students. Workers did not go on strike in many major sectors. And my administration signed landmark agreements with unions to create a safer and more stable working environment across the nation. Nonetheless, Chiani is trying to suggest the coup has popular support with rallies like this. On Sunday, as the ECOWAS deadline slipped past and military action loomed, thousands of coup supporters gathered in a stadium in Niamey. They were waving Nigerian flags. As well as some Russian ones, they were there to hear speeches from the coup leaders and members of the new military council. Earlier today, I spoke to Afalabi Adakayoaja, a research analyst at the Centre for Democracy and Development in West Africa. Niger now completes uh, a corridor from east to west Africa of the different regimes down on military rule. So you have Sudan in the east, Chad in the center, and then you Niger, know, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea in Western Africa. The challenge for ECOWAS really has been that in previous uh, different coups, especially from 2020, so you're looking at Mali, Guinea, and twice in Burkina Faso, uh, ECOWAS hasn't intervened. ECOWAS hasn't had that level of political, you know, crowd in terms of pushing forward and saying that we're going to really intervene to force back uh, a return to normalcy. ECOWAS has applied sanctions, ECOWAS has closed borders, and ECOWAS has eventually sent mediators to try to get uh, the groups back to the negotiating table and eventually push forward back towards a more democratic uh, structure. Now, that particular level of presence was really great in Ecuador's response now, because obviously the challenge is that, well, if you weren't district to the other countries, why serve in share? And then that brings us to the second part of the dynamic, which is the leadership. Of ECOWAS. And this is not about commissions, it's about the head of the ECOWAS authority. So earlier last month, uh, the ECOWAS heads of state selected the new Nigerian president, Bola Tinubu, as the new chair of the ECOWAS authority. Now, Tinubu was elected as Nigeria's president in February and took office in May. So he's been there, he's served not to 100 days in, and he's already been in this very strong position. Now, Tinubu came into office uh, and when he was elected chair, notably said that he was you know, really against uh, anything cool related, especially because that was the perception that the region was getting. So, expectedly, the idea was that Tinubu was in a very strong uh, was in a position to really show that level of strong pushback, really asserting himself and really showing that Nigeria has quite frankly the most, you know, the most influential power in the region was going to really push back against such an intervention. And even on a more personal and domestic level, you're looking at a article happening at Nigeria's borders. Niger shares Nigeria's longest territorial border. And one of the concerns there really being that if any disruption happens there, it has definite implications for humanitarian and security challenges for the country, especially in this northern region. Now, when you now go back to the wider structure at large, different structure, different groups are pushing back against such a potential intervention. Within ECOWAS, we've already seen how the other military groups, the Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, have already decided and declared that any attack on Niger will be seen as a similar, you know, uh, attack on their particular or on their own country. So it's really trying to show that level of solidarity with that particular military regime. And even within Nigeria, the Nigerian Senate sent a very uh, strong letter to the president last week, urging him to prioritize diplomatic concerns and actively condemning and trying to close the door on any military intervention. The governors of the states in Nigeria that border Niger have also met with the president. And we were told that their message was also to really try to encourage you to take a step back and to try to prioritize diplomatic relations and uh, solutions. And we know that even within the country, the level of insecurity that's going on, the challenges when regards to recent economic policies mean that it's really, like there are many issues domestically that the president should focus on. Uh, many citizens and many analysts do believe that now moving towards a more uh, a more volatile situation in terms of a war or in terms of an intervention with the neighboring country would be much more uh, than the country can afford to take. So in a nutshell, these different factors point to what is likely to be uh, a stronger push for a more diplomatic resolution. Uh, we've been told that ECOWAS has planned a meeting for Thursday, uh, and that will likely be full up to what has already been the missed deadline that you already set. The African Union itself set a, a longer deadline, which expires uh, around the same time. So we expect that there will be some coordination in terms of the next steps that are taken between the regional and the continental power. Uh, and we know that 
If there are also different diplomats that are busy shocking the region, Nigeria deployed the former head of state uh, last week to try to meet with the Nigerian leaders and also deployed it into Algeria to ensure that any uh, any solution that is put forward has a comprehensive um, support of not just of not just Nigeria and ECOWAS, but also even allies and even other countries that are in other regions that border Niger, such as Algeria and Chad. Ultimately, the likelihood is that we are that we will push towards a much more diplomatic solution. It is the likelihood that there won't be a very strong military intervention, and that what will likely be the case is that there will be a decision to acquiesce on several fronts to try to find a safe landing for the coup process who have led the of the president to try to agree on a transition plan for the returns of democracy. And this is it again without the historical you know incidents. This actually happened in Niger in 2010, and that was the same way that Ecowas had tried to resolve it. And in that particular situation, the army was quite fast in making sure that there was a much more accelerated transition program. And that was now what led uh, to the to the return to the Isufu um, administration. Uh, many commentators have looked at this coup and suggested that it's a victory for Russia and a loss for the West, in particular France, who, of course, are the former colonial power. Um, what would you say about the politics of this coup in terms of countries outside of Africa? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, the reason being that there's a lot of, of fixation uh, on this being a proxy battle, on this being used uh, primarily from, uh, from much more foreign perception, but then that really deprives the situation of the African agency that it really does have. The fact of the matter of this, Chiani moved against the president because he was at risk of being from his position. There wasn't any strong infiltration or any strong you know, inclination for any foreign powers to directly you know, intervene and try to encourage him to pop up a new regime. So that in itself does you know, absolve this particular story of the expected narrative of France, France leading and Russia winning that many different analysts seem to want to push. The second thing really is that the reality of the geopolitics in the region is such that Niger is in a very strategic position. So even beyond it just being a, a, a haven for any Western interest, even within the region itself, you, know, you have different countries that are quite concerned about the fact that now almost all of them will be bordering countries that have experienced coups in the last three years if this is allowed to, to continue. So this is a, so there's a possibility and there's a very strong donation for many countries to try to curb that particular, um, you know, reality. Now, we can't ignore the fact that Niger was one of the last, if not the last, uh, you know, uh, ally for the West, especially for France and the United States in the region. But we're not looking again at why or to the particular you know, notion as to what this was actually going to help. We're looking at a country that was strategically placed in terms of trying to curb against any migration, particularly well known for, for, for trying to present against any jihadist extremism. And these are situations and issues that affect quite a lot of many security concerns in the region. So it's not necessarily just a case of strictly supporting or looking at it being a Western proxy battle. Also, even within the region, there are many concerns that will be aggravated if Niger is allowed to fall. And I think the last point that is really important to note is that this is one of the this coup really just establishes a pattern of younger leaders assuming positions when coups have taken place. And now the pool, the poll, is now a case where you are now, so Richiani really just breaks that particular pattern there. But then in lots of the narrative, lots of the spill comes from people who have really taken on board the, the new narrative of France being you know, still a very encroaching and still very present imperialist power and this idea of trying to shed these colonial ties. Now, this is something that is completely novel, something that has actually been building for quite a while. So even if it was a case where France was to get quote unquote removed from this particular situation, it wouldn't necessarily be a case where Russia would you know, easily be the ideal piece to just swoop in. You're not looking at the case where there might be some much more pan-African you know, discourse in terms of how these countries decide to move forward and then try to find that solution and then try to forge a way forward. Now, one of the other points I would also touch on is the fact that even besides you know, the whole Russia and France discourse, it's not, it, it would be very unwise to ignore the countries that have played a very important role in the region and in the country. Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been really influential in trying to support and you know, even carry out many, many investments in the 
the region, such as the Kandaji Dam, uh, sorry, the Kandaji Dam uh, in Asia. Uh, and then obviously you have the, the rise of China that's made it very important all economically across many countries in the region and has given no inclination that it, it intends to really wind down its investments there. In a nutshell, uh, what we're looking at is a situation that is really um, really driven by African agency, but, but definitely has in a very integrated and ever-connected world. The geopolitics uh, mean that this situation is evolving and it's something that will likely be much more uh, fluid and something that we really can't put a very firm grip on until it is resolved. Next story. London's ultra-low emission zone has become a bit of a political football. The expansion of ULES, which finds especially polluting cars to drive in the capital, was blamed for the Tories holding Uxbridge, but before that, it had long been a bugbear of the right. And anti-ULES activists are now taking matters into their own hands. This footage, shared by the Murdoch-owned Talk TV, shows a balaclavered person climbing up a lamppost and removing a ULES camera. We're told it's filmed in Broccoli, and that the activists, or vandals, depending on how you look at these things, is from a group called the Blade Runners. Talk TV also had a guest on to discuss the footage. This is leader of the Reform Party, Richard Tice, speaking to Mike Graham. No one condones illegal activity. No. But regrettably, what we are seeing is the frustration of ordinary people mm. who see this as a tax on the poor yeah. without any Another justification. Another tax. We were just talking Another about Another tax that. on the poor without any justification against the consultation against the scientific data, and people are saying, enough is enough. Mm. If the politicians, you know, if, if they completely fail to properly represent us, then people's frustration boils over. So we don't condone it, but uh, regrettably, it's happening here. It's happening with uh, the protests against the migrant hotels. There's a number of different areas of life in the UK at the moment mm. where the politicians are failing the people, whether it's what you're seeing with the shoplifting, all of this stuff, and people are saying... What is going on? Yeah. Enough is enough. And uh, as I say, people are just steaming furious mm. with uh, with this. And and this is the regrettable consequence. Yeah, absolutely right. It's, it's a bit like with the Just Stop Oil protest. Mm. Eventually, drivers end up taking the matters into their own hands right. because the police have failed to deal with it. Mm. Now, I've never seen a, a talk TV host be quite so soft on someone who is, well, he says he's not defending the, the, the direct action, but clearly, you know, it was a sympathetic account of what had gone on. Um, almost, you know, I, I almost dared to believe when he sort of mentioned Just Stop Oil at the end, that maybe he would talk about, you know, that nuance of the debate. You know, it's a bit like Just Stop Oil. Obviously, they fought and that they have a policy priority, which is not being listened to by the by their political establishment, so therefore they take direct action. It's a little bit like that. No, of course, um, he was talking about the people who try and, you know, push Just Stop Oil over or beat them up when they want to get past them in the road. So Richard Tice wasn't in the mood um, to talk about the fact that direct action can be complex. He wasn't saying, yes, I am sympathetic to this, but I wonder what this says about the left and how we talk about Just Stop Oil. No, neither him nor Mike Graham had any interest in such complexities. We do, though. Um, and of course, it's not only pro-car activists who are taking direct action to achieve their aims. Just published on NavarraMedia.com is this article about a group called the Tire Extinguishers who have targeted a fleet of Land Rovers by drilling holes in their tires. The action took place at a Jaguar Land Rover dealership in Exeter where members of the group targeted at least 60 SUVs. Claire Heimer reports this. The group argued it was a necessary escalation and an act of retaliation for the death of two children after a Land Rover crashed into an outdoor tea party in Wimbledon, London in July. Children are eight times more likely to die when struck by an SUV compared to those struck by a passenger car, according to a study published last year. SUVs are also more polluting than smaller vehicles. The tyre extinguishers said their action was intended as a, quote, non-violent demonstration to draw attention to the presence of grossly inappropriate private vehicles in our towns and cities, unquote. They hope it will serve as a wake-up call in order to prevent future tragedies and make our roads safer for everyone. Since March 2022, the tyre extinguishers claim to have deflated the tyres of around 20,000 SUVs across 18 countries, making them temporarily unusable. As our audience can probably guess, I'm pro-ULES and anti-SUVs. Um, I would normally talk about the anti-SUV actions in a sympathetic light, the pro-ULES actions in a less sympathetic light. But I mean, they are, they're very similar in terms of the form, right? They're very similar forms of direct action, taking sort of a practical measure, criminal damage, essentially, not harming anyone. I mean, to be consistent, do I need to have the same opinion 
of direct action in both cases? No, of course not. The, look, the, the, there's two separate bits to this. One, one of which is maybe a, a moral stand you might want to have about taking any kind of direct action, the sort of moral judgment you might form about what someone's doing. And that could be all sorts of different things for any given action. The other one is, I suppose, particularly when you're thinking about what uh, what the anti-SUV protesters are doing, it's a sort of practical or political uh, version of this, which is like, what impact does it have? Does it does this turn into something uh, effective out, uh, out the other side? We saw a version of that actually with you know Greenpeace uh, protesting at Rishi Sunak's uh, house last week. Um, you know, does this turn into something that advances the conversation, that moves the politics somewhere, that changes uh, how things might operate? And the, the difficulty I think with some of these direct actions, where it's quite a small group of people going off and doing something subtly under cover of darkness and all the rest of it, is that you're not necessarily getting into the point where the thing that's really going to shift this and this is. Is what we've seen has always shifted things in the past is when you have very large numbers of people prepared to protest and prepared to take part in something. And that's the force that starts to, to shift uh, the argument here. So that would be my political kind of uh, question mark to raise around the, the SUV uh, uh, protesters there, in addition to any sort of moral issues you might want to raise about some of these sorts of things. Of course, there's a very long history of direct action. I know everyone always makes this point, but you know we do have a history of direct action and protests and all the rest of it in this country over many, many hundreds of years now. Suffragettes is the one that people go to. Who's going to turn around now and say they're all bad? But if you look at what at least some parts of the suffragettes were doing, you know, this was uh, breaking windows in banks, smashing up post offices on one occasion, trying to set fire to a theatre in Dublin because the prime minister was visiting. I mean, really quiet. You know, this is getting really into some pretty uh, violent forms of protest here. The, 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 who turn around later and say, oh, well, it's all wrong. It's all bad because of that. The real question to us is, what are the politics? Does it get you to a political point you want to be in as a result of this? And that, I think, is a useful question to pose to the, the anti-SUV protesters. When it comes to the broader politics of driving, um, the issue, sort of the big elephant in the room, can be summarised with a single number, 25 billion. That's the amount in pounds that the Exchequer currently collects in fuel duty, and which will disappear once Britain's car fleet is converted to electricity. And the government, then, will have to find a way to make that figure back again. The right-wing think tank, the Centre for Policy Studies, has tackled this problem and come up with a specific solution, road pricing. In their report, named The Future of Driving, the think tank suggested this. So these are their proposals. Bringing in a per-mile charging system for electric vehicles to ensure that they pay their fair share. However, the aim should be that zero-emissions vehicles, or ZEVs, drivers still pay significantly less than their petrol and diesel counterparts, giving drivers a reason to make their next vehicle purchase a ZEV. They say these changes should be signposted well in advance. Charges for ZEVs should not come in until later this decade so as not to dent take up and give time to work out the practicalities. They also suggest each vehicle would be assigned a per mile rate based on its weight to reflect where on roads. Charges would be collected monthly by direct debit. And they say to reflect the public's concerns about fairness, drivers would receive a free mileage allowance based on their postcode. Drivers in remote areas with limited or non-existent public transport options would receive a higher allowance than big city drivers well served by trains and buses. Concessions could also be granted based on disability, low income, and so on, though such measures would involve a clear trade-off with economic efficiency. This is a, a right-wing think tank. So I think it's one of Margaret Thatcher's favourite think tanks saying we should introduce road pricing. At the same time, I know that if a Labour politician suggested road pricing, the whole Tory cabinet would come down on them like a ton of bricks. Is... Is road pricing inevitable? Is our politics ready for it? Probably not, to be quite honest with you. I mean, look, a government could, if they wanted to, just say, do you know what? We'll just borrow the money instead. We'll just add £25 billion onto the deficit. There's a whole load of reasons why that's not necessarily a particularly desirable idea to just go, you know, free car use for everyone. Um, but you could potentially do that. And you might also think, well, perhaps we'll just cut £25 billion out of something else to try and cover that particular cost. There would be other options here. But I suspect we're going to end up with some discussion around this. But look how it's, look how it's already going. Okay, so they're saying, right, we'll have a, a per mile charge in your car. Okay, so how are we going to actually enforce that? That's going to involve you monitoring that car being used. So either your electric vehicle has a, a chip or something in it that says, okay, this is how far you've driven, here comes your tax bill. So it's quite an intense form of surveillance. Or lo and behold, you're going to have to start putting up... Uh, <laughs> video cameras uh, all over the place and sensors to try and log who's driving in and out and working out how far they've driven all the rest of it. And we've just seen what another bit of the right thinks about that. So I think this is going to get really quite a tense 
uh, political issue with some of the splits and divides in it not necessarily falling very easily onto a natural sort of left left right split. There's something else in there, by the way, which is that look, put it this way: it's it's what fifty thousand pounds, incredible, really, is the average cost of a new electric vehicle car in the UK. Right, it's streets ahead of what you'd pay for a, a new or even a fairly cheap or not so cheap um, petrol engine car at this point in time. If you're starting to say, okay, we're going to kind of reward people who are driving electric vehicles, you're also saying this is going to be a set of people right now who are really quite well off. Now, if we want to do something about this, we might want to break out of just going, you personally have a car, you will get a car and that's your car and you drive it around. And if you're rich, you get a nice, decent car. And if you're poor, well, maybe no car at all. We might have to start thinking about carpooling, car sharing arrangements, or even, heaven forbid, getting more people onto public transport and really seriously investing in that. Final story. The Tories are desperate to paint Keir Starmer as soft on irregular migration. And Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick this weekend took to the sun to make this argument. Sir Keir Starmer faces serious questions for trying to thwart our work to stop the boats. And a key claim in the article is this. So Jenrick writes, Today we learn that a top lawyer who advised Labour on anti-racism policies is at the forefront of efforts to stop people being deported to Rwanda. Now, that's the second sentence of the article, so a key claim. But bizarrely, Jenrick offers no more detail about who this person might be. Jenrick went on to repeat the claim on LBC, and the host, Andrew Castle, tried to clear the mystery up. It's also by Keir Starmer's, uh, one of his closest advisers, who is involved in that uh, legal action. So the Labour Party... What's are, his name or her name? In, in trying to prevent this approach. Yeah, well, 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 perhaps they disagree with your policy, so they're using all means to, to, to stop well, I think it, the, which well, is Labour fair enough within be, the confines Labour, of the law. Who is oh, this person? Who is Sakir Starmer's friend? They should be on it. Well, they've sat on a number of um, boards that are linked to the... So I just, I don't know, Robert, what the name of this person is, so we could look up the story. I wonder if you could tell us the name of this person so we can have a good look at it. Well, you, you can read, if you'd like, my op-ed in today's Sun that uh, that talks about um, Sakir's advisor, uh, who sat on a number of panels with right. him. Um, but the, the point I'm making here is that the Labour Party's approach is one whereby they support uh, all of these efforts to prevent um, our, our, our efforts to stop the boats, and, you know, I think that people just have to be honest oh, about that. that that's that's going to make life much more difficult okay. uh, to take forward the policy that we're pursuing. So Keir Starmer, you say in your, uh, in your op-ed in The Sun today, page 14, faces serious questions about his links with charities and lawyers who've campaigned to thwart our work to stop the boats. Today, we learn that a top lawyer who advised Labour on anti-racism policies is at the forefront of efforts to stop people being deported to uh, Rwanda. Where is it? Where is the name here? Um, well, it's in it's in it's in the article. What is the name? <laughs> Please, what's what's the name? Andrew Castle was there, sounding quite so exasperated because the name of the lawyer, you know, so central to Jenrick's piece. This is the person who Kistama is supposed to be allying with. It's not in the Sun article, but given it's not there, Jenrick could surely just clear up the mystery by telling us himself their name. He wrote the article, of course. If a sub editor took the name out, he could tell us. No, surely. Well, let's see what happened next. I don't think you've named... It's illegal. Robert, I don't think you've named this person, Sakir's mate, who's trying to thwart all your cunning plans to stop people getting in boats and coming over here. I don't think you've named the person in this article. Either that or the uh, somebody, some sub has taken it out. So I'll ask you again. Can you just name the person that you, you, that you claim in your article is... is uh, uh, is uh, is stopping people being deported to R Rwanda, who is a mate of Sakir Starmer. Can you just give me the name? Uh, well, it, it is actually named in, in the article that uh, we've seen. And also Where in, is uh, it? What's uh, the name? In, in what line? What paragraph? In the Home Secretary. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you so you can... You can I mean, see this it. is the absolute uh, mystery. Is, I don't, I, I don't understand why that that is. What? Why don't you want to name that person when you say that that person's name is in that piece and I can't find it? Why don't you want to name that person? Um, well, I think I'm sorry can, to be so stuck be able, on this. You, no, no, I understand, but you'll you'll be able to find it uh, online if you take a look. It was really bizarre. You can't find that name if you look online, and I mean, I, I presume, I assume the reason the sun, you know, if. What it seems like is maybe Robert Jenrick thinks he put the name in the sun and then maybe the sun's 
legal people said, I don't think we can say that about that person. So they just made it an anonymous claim. And then Robert Jenrick, not really knowing what was going on, didn't want to name that person himself because he didn't want to be subject to any kind of legal complaint. Now, we've obviously seen this from The Sun with the Hugh Edwards story. They were writing a lot of, you know, in, in, in many ways, spurious allegations against someone, but they didn't want to name the person because they knew that then they would be subject to legal complaints. So they made it about an anonymous BBC presenter. These are much less damaging claims than they made about Hugh Edwards. But here now we've got this lefty lawyer who's been supporting people crossing the channel on boats or whatever the allegation is. They don't want to name the person, I would presume, because they're not that confident in the accuracy of their claims. James, what did you make of that performance from Robert Jenrick? It's worth, I think, emphasizing as well. The current Minister for Immigration, this isn't just some backbencher who wrote a little blog in the sun. This is the current Minister for Immigration. It seems very unprofessional to me. You would have thought one of your most basic bits of preparation is you might well get asked to name this person. You might well get asked to describe this person. If you're going into the interview, this is going to be a thing that comes up. But it just seemed like he didn't really seem aware that the name wasn't in, which suggests probably he didn't really write the piece himself. And as you say, perhaps a son lawyer at some point just did a quick, you know, we can't really say this about someone alleged to be one of uh, Keir Starmer's closest aides, you know, sort of nonsensical journalistic description tagged on there. I don't think I don't think the, the person who this may or may not be has actually been named anywhere yet. So, so goodness knows what's going on. But yeah, a real lack of preparation, like just missing the most basic thing you're likely to get asked in any interview isn't like, oh, this mysterious, all-powerful person secretly controlling Labour policy. Can you name them? It's the next sort of thing to get to. Yeah, completely bizarre. And obviously he's, he's in charge of Britain's immigration system, which is, you know, we say that the Labour line that the government's problem is competence is very much limited. In many ways, it would be better if they made a moral case for the kind of things or a moral case against the kind of things the Conservative Party are doing. But if you do want to make an argument about competence, the Tories do make it very, very easy. This issue of sort of tarring Keir Starmer as friends of lefty lawyers who are the enemy of Britain, is it going to work, James? The Tories do seem to think it's got legs, but I'm not sure how, how much it's sticking. It works if Labour lets it work, and they do sort of react to this stuff by sort of desperately trying to come out and say how 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 not like the, the Tory stereotype they are. They got a real sort of paranoia that's developed around this. For instance, Keir Starmer describing Just Stop Oil as contemptible for daring to suggest that we shouldn't, in fact, you know, dig every last bit of fossil fuel we can out of the North Sea, given the climate crisis and all the rest of it. I mean, that's a very strong word to use. Massively over the top, whatever you might think about Just Stop Oil or whatever, massively over the top, clearly a kind of overreaction to the Tory attempts to provoke them on this. So presume there's something going on with this as well. They expect the Labour leadership in the way that they are hypersensitive to this stuff to massively overreact. And of course, that doesn't actually benefit Labour very much, but it does mean that Tories can keep the story going and they can keep this going for some period of time as an election comes up in, what, 18 months or so. And everyone on the left gets demoralised, which they don't seem to mind at all. Um, James, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure as always. Of course. Very good to speak to you again. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.